Well, uh, debate, argument, it's very much a part of the human experience. I'm sure uh, you experience this as well as I do. In fact, we probably spend countless hours arguing, debating with one another about all kinds of things. Some of those things are important. Many of those things are unimportant. In the Hooky household, uh, where there's a few debates that come up uh, often or more frequent than others, one is whose turn is it to unload the dishwasher? Uh, inevitably, you know, I have six kids, and so there's plenty of people to point the finger at to say uh, whose turn it is to unload the dishwasher, and then defending yourself as to how it was your turn last time. And so eventually you get to a place we have no idea. It's nobody's turn to unload the dishwasher, and mom and dad just have to make a decision. Or the other argument is, was someone safe or out at first base? You know, backyard baseball, it is very important. Uh, it's, it's life or death out there. And so whether or not you're safe or you're out is a big deal. And so we have to arbitrate between our children. No, I tagged you. I didn't feel you tag me, so there's no way I was out. And we have to make this decision. We're the referees now of a play we did not see. And needless to say, we have to just to make some choice, and our children have to live with it. And I now know what it feels like to be a youth referee, something I would never want to do. But we have all kinds of debates, like, is Apple better than Android? Or is college football or NFL football? You know, dogs or cats? Neither, is my opinion. <laughs> the Iowa State Fair, is it better? Why? <laughs> I have six kids. I don't want more animal. I don't want an animal in my house. I don't need something else to take care of. Like, and they're not going to take care of it. We had some fish. They, they, they survived a little bit longer than other things. Uh, or is it LeBron or is it Kobe? Is it Jordan? Who is the best? And when you think about our debates, oftentimes they center on this theme, this argument of what's better, what's best, who's the greatest at something. And like us, the disciples are in an argument. They're in a debate. And we're going to look at this passage. There's three sections here this morning, but I'm just going to do the first two for the sake of time. The first is the argument, and the second then is the teaching. Verse 24, then the dispute arose among them about who should be considered the greatest. Who should be considered the greatest? You know, the disciples are together, and there's this argument that breaks out, and the argument that breaks out amongst them is who's the best? Who's top dog? Who is number one? And as we think about our human experience, not only do we get in debates and arguments, but we often compare ourselves to one another. We are in competition with one another and often stacking ourselves up against each other, trying to outdo one another, trying to be the best at something. And being number one motivates many people, probably motivates many of us. As uh, Ludacris says, I don't know if you remember this guy or not back in the day, might be aging myself. I'm trying to be number one all the way around. It's not just the south, not just the east, not the west. It's going for across the world. You know what I'm saying? This is where I'm coming from. Or Kobe, he says, I want to be the best, simple and plain. And that's oftentimes what drives many people in life. It's just being the best at their thing. Being the most well-known. Being on top, so to speak. Well, what started the debate here with these men? Well, remember the context. In verse 14... Chapter 22, when the hour came, Luke says he reclined at the table and the apostles with him, meaning Jesus. Then he said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover meal with you before I suffer. That they're in the upper room, they're with Jesus around the table celebrating Passover. And Jesus, Jesus begins to teach about what new Passover is. And he's there and he's about to suffer. He's about to go to the cross to experience excruciating pain. And not just the pain of the crucifixion, but the pain of being forsaken by his father. Because he will bear the punishment, the wrath of God for the sin that we have committed against God. 
And as he's in the upper room and as he's sharing the Passover with these men, he says in verse 21, but look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me. In verse 23, so they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. So there's this statement by Jesus that one of you, one of these 12 men who have been with Jesus for the last three years, every day spending their life with Jesus, traveling with Jesus, watching Jesus, being taught by Jesus, and one of them, he says, you, one of you is going to turn your back on me. You're going to betray me. And then ensues this argument and debate about who is it going to be. And I can imagine, you know, they're pointing at the other person, just like, you know, my children. They point at the other child about something that happened. And then there's this dispute that arises from that argument in this dispute about who is the greatest. And I can see how this morphs from one thing to the next. You know, like, nobody wants to be the one who is going to betray Jesus, Nobody wants to be the one who thinks they're going to betray Jesus. And you want to protect yourself from others thinking that you are going to betray Jesus. So naturally, it moves into or morphs into this arguing about, I'm better than you. So how could I ever betray Jesus? I'm the greatest. I'm the best. And you just notice this disconnect here, right? Uh, you, just kinda, you can't help but notice that Jesus is preparing to suffer and die. That he has his closest friends with him hours and before his death and then these men they're just arguing about who's the best they're focused on themselves as one commentator said it's almost frightening to think that after jesus poured three years of his life into these men after they saw the character of jesus on display in almost every conceivable circumstance that now the final hours before his betrayal arrest and crucifixion they argue about which of them was the greatest they couldn't get along. Rather than cooperating and operating as a team, they were debating and arguing amongst themselves about who is the best. And there's this just great disconnect. And Jesus could have just looked at these men and just told them to knock it off. He could have settled the debate by just saying, well, I am the greatest, so you guys just need to be quiet. He could have ignored them. He could have done a lot of things. But what Jesus does is he leans in to the conversation. He leans into the argument that they're having. And he leans in with gentleness and patience. He doesn't just go at them and crack them, but he gently ends the debate by teaching them what greatness is in the kingdom of God. How they should think about greatness. And this leads to the teaching, verse 25. But then he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. It's not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest. Whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. How does a person become great in the kingdom of God? Or how does God measure greatness? Well, here's the answer in short, and we'll break it down. If you want to become great in the kingdom of God, you must become a humble servant. That greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by how high you get, but in one sense how low you can go. And we see this here. Jesus teases this out by looking at really three or two groups of people, and then he looks at himself. And the first group he looks at is those who are in authority. The way the world measures and thinks about greatness. In verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. They lord it over them. This is how the world tends to think and operate operates off the base of power, autocratic power, dominance, this dictatorship. That a king is evaluated, uh, or his power is evaluated by how much power he has, how many people he is over, whom he can, how many people he can tell what to do, how many people serve him. That power, authority, 
In the eyes of the world is what equals greatness. It's all about the people, that you, the number of people you have that you can tell what to do, the position you sit in, the number of people that serve you. That's greatness. And Jesus then makes the statement, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. And this was a widespread class of people who had power, they had position, they had money. It was a title often given to kings in the East. And this idea was that a benefactor is somebody who is doing something for the benefit of others. So the decision they're making or whatever choice it is that they're making, the ruling they come down, it's for the benefit of those who are, they are over. But in this case, it's different. Notice what Jesus says, that those who have authority over them have them call themselves, or have themselves called benefactors. They tell the people that they're leading, you need to identify or look at me as a benefactor. Why? So they were careful to ensure, or careful to have the people they were in authority over to address them in this way, to title them in this way. Well, why did they do that? Well, because they wanted people to think that what they were doing was in their best interest. Because when people tend to think that what they're doing, that someone is making a decision for their best interest, they tend to follow them more. You gain more power, more authority in one sense. In fact, one commentator said they did this to dupe people. It's just a scheme to dupe people in believing that all they care about are the interests of the people that they're leading. But in reality, what they care about is themselves. In fact, this word called in the Greek, it captures this sense of self-promotion or this desire for recognition. And they would have themselves celebrated in public spaces by other people. That really the, the, the idea of greatness in the world is notoriety, it's recognition, It's getting credit and honor, accolades. It's about sitting in positions of power and authority. This is greatness in the world. We still live in a world that thinks about greatness as the amount of power that you have, the amount of control that you can exert over people, the number of people who follow you, listen to you. The bigger the the entourage you have, the more awesome that you are. We still live in a world where people will tell you that they're serving you for your benefit when really they're just using you for their own gain, their own glory. They don't care about others, but they're using others. The world recognizes power. It rewards power and prominence. But Jesus says this, it's not to be like that among you in verse 26. There's a different way that you should think about greatness, and there's a different way that you should measure greatness. And he looks at this other group of people, those who are lowly. In verse 26, on the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest. And whoever leads like the one serving. The word youngest here is in reference to age. That in Jesus' day, the youngest who had the least amount of honor of all people. Because at that point in time, honor was associated with age. As one commentator put it, in the ancient world, it was accepted that age gave privileges. The youngest was, by definition, the lowliest. And Jesus says, you should not be like the rulers lording authority over people. Instead, what you should do is you should become like the youngest, the lowliest. In one sense, even the outcast of society. And he follows that up by To emphasize the point by saying, and whoever leads like the one serving. This word serving, it literally means to wait on tables. This idea of a waiter. And Jesus says right after that, he says, for who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? In many cultures, 
What happens is you think of honor as the people who are sitting at the table. We don't look at the one who is, uh, the one who is honored or the one who is greater as the one who is serving, but we look at that person as the people who are sitting at the table. In fact, in, uh, in ancient China, rich people would sometimes grow their nails out really long. I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of someone who has like really long fingernails. And you look at their hands and you think, that's so dumb because you can't do anything. Like you can't pick anything up. Well, that was kind of the point. Is they grow themselves, their nails so long they could do nothing for themselves. And it was seen, seen as a sign of status because then you needed people to do things for you, to wait on you. And then oftentimes the way we think about greatness is that there's somebody who is waiting on us, that the person who has real greatness, who is really awesome, is the one who has people around them, serving them, waiting to do whatever they want at their beck and call to answer the call of service. I remember in uh, college, or shortly after college, rather, um, I went to a wedding, or I was in a wedding with a friend in, you know, in Chicago, and uh, it was the most elaborate, expensive wedding I've ever been to. It was pretty awesome. And we were at this wedding, downtown Chicago in the business district, and I remember her dad came in. You know, all the guys were just in one room. You know, the ladies are getting ready. It takes hours. The guys can get ready in like five minutes, so we're trying to kill the hours <laughs> doing something, playing cards. I don't know what we were doing. And uh, her dad walks in, and he's like, this is so-and-so, and he will get you whatever you want. And we're like, oh, okay. Like, what do you mean? He's like, well, if you want some French fries, he'll go to McDonald's and get some French fries. You want a pop? He'll go buy you a pop. Whatever you want, just tell him, and he'll get it for you. Uh, and begin to understand and realize this was this guy's like, personal butler. Like he just went with him and he just did whatever he wanted him to do. Now there's nothing like inherently wrong with that. He, I'm, you know, he paid him well. But the point is that you look at that and we think that is a position of greatness. This power, this ability to have somebody at your side to do whatever you want. Having people serve you. But Jesus says greatness in the kingdom of God is not about being served. It's not measured on how many people serve you, but whether or not you serve others. It's about getting low. It's about putting yourself below others to meet their needs. That leaders in the kingdom of God are not to sit and lord their authority over people and just tell people what to do, but they are to be the example of serving. The greatness is found in serving, not being served. This is what Jesus is getting at. He's trying to rearrange our thinking and our priorities. That oftentimes we're looking for people to do things for us. And Jesus says, no, 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 you should be looking to do things for others. See, I know in the culture, people say it's the, the people that are at the table, that they, they are the, the, greater, the greater ones. And in many cultures, that's what people envy is that person. But Jesus says, no, 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 not like that among you. Greatness is not being the one who's at the table being served. It's the one who is serving at the table, if you will. And Jesus doesn't stop here, but he looks at one more person, and that person happens to be himself. And he says in verse 27, For who is greater, the one at the table, the one serving? Isn't the one at the table, but I. I am among you as the one who serves. See, I'm not the one who's sitting at the table. I'm the one who is waiting on those who are at the table. And Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do. He actually does it. He doesn't just call us to become people who serve. 
But Jesus actually lived as a servant. He lowered himself. He got below others and met their needs. And we see this in John chapter 13. That John records this scene in the upper room. That at this point in Luke's gospel, they're in the upper room celebrating Passover. And John gives us this window that the other gospels don't quite give us. When uh, this, this time in the Passover, or during the Passover meal, in the upper room with his disciples. That John 13 through 17, these teachings that Jesus gives with these men. And one of his teachings during this time in the upper room was about serving. About being a humble servant. And we're told that it was supper time. And he got up from supper, from the table, and he takes off his outer garments, his outer clothing, and he takes a towel and he wraps it around himself. And he gets this base and fills it with water. And he gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Then he dries their feet with the towel that's around his waist. Many of you probably know historically or the context of what's going on here. Uh, that when you would come to somebody's home for a meal, um, these people traveled and they're traveling down dirty, dusty roads. And so feet would need to be cleaned when they came to somebody's house. And so it was of the owner of the house, they would provide somebody to wash the feet of their guests. And you think about feet during that time, you know, a lot of people don't like feet. But feature in this time have been pretty gross. You're wearing sandals. You're traveling on these dusty roads. You know, animals use these roads as their toilets. You might step in something and you have this little surprise in the bottom of your foot and you realize you have, you know, sandals on and that's kind of gross. Or your feet are muddy, whatever the case might be. But you would get to this person's house and you'd wash, their feet would be washed by the servant there. And it wasn't just by any servant. This task in particular, because it was so disgusting, was reserved for the lowliest of servants in the home. That there was even a different rank within the servants in the home, and it was reserved for the lowliest of servants, was to wash the feet of the guests. Now, who is performing this task? Jesus. Jesus doesn't look at one of the disciples and says to them, hey, you need to wash each other's feet, which would have been totally appropriate. Jesus doesn't find somebody else to wash the feet of his men. But Jesus himself, God, becomes a servant, gets on the ground, cleanses their feet. I mean, just got to have that image, right? They're arguing about who's the greatest I don't know exactly the timeline of how this fits, but they're arguing about who is the greatest. And Jesus gets down and washes their feet. Now, how much, how big of an idiot would you feel like then, right? You're like, oh. That Jesus led the way. And he says to his disciples and to us, do you know what I have done for you in verse 12? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're speaking rightly since that's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He says, I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. Truly, I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Jesus says, I'm setting an example for you of how I want you to live. 
You should not be living like the world lives. You should not be thinking about greatness like the world thinks about greatness. You should not be pursuing power and honor, but you should be pursuing life of a servant. You should be getting low. You should wash one another's feet. Now, I think it's important here to note that when Jesus calls us to serve, he's not simply talking about performing certain tasks. So he says here, you should wash one another's feet. And that's totally appropriate. Great, you, we can wash one another's feet. Uh, maybe we should do that. I don't know. We can, you know, it's kind of dusty and dirty in here. And we could practice that. But Jesus isn't just simply talking about a practice or like the task. But he's talking about the attitude, a mindset that we are to have. What is that attitude or what is the mindset that goes with this picture of serving? Well, Paul, I think he distills that pretty well in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not to his own interests. They should not look to just their own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I like how the New Living Translation states it. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. This is the attitude. It's not simply about performing the tasks of the servant. But we're actually to look, to think about one another as greater than ourself. There were not just, oftentimes we do servant things or we serve in certain ways. But what's attached to our serving is we're trying to impress somebody else. We're trying to gain the attention of another person. Someone that maybe we like a guy or girl or our boss or whoever, somebody in some position of authority, that we attach things to our serving. And Paul says, don't be selfish. You're not to be serving because you're trying to gain something from somebody else. So you're not serving to get something from that person. Oftentimes this is what happens. We serve with this expectation that someone is going to do something for us. But Paul says, humility The life of a servant is not driven by selfishness. It's not driven by trying to impress others. But instead, you should think of those people as better than you. As better than yourself. We're not just to simply be consumed and concerned with us, but rather we are to be consumed and concerned with others. Now, it takes zero effort for us to be consumed with ourselves. Like we wake up every day thinking about ourselves and we go to bed thinking about ourselves. That's not hard. And so that's the natural, that's the default position we're at. But Jesus again is trying to change our thinking, correct our thinking to where we should look at one another as greater than ourselves. And oftentimes it's the problem is that we don't look at others as better than us. We see ourselves as better than others and we think other people should serve us. Don't you understand who I am? Don't you understand how much money I have? The position I hold, my time, don't you see that? And that's the attitude that we can operate with. Jesus, no, 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 that's the wrong attitude. In fact, Jesus clearly demonstrates the right attitude 
as Paul talks about here in verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. I mean, just think about this. Jesus is saying, or Paul is telling us about the mind, the thought here of Jesus. Jesus is God. And God has no obligation to do anything about our sin. He made us and created us, and what we have done is we've spurned God. We've turned our back on God. We've put the hand to the face of God and said, I'm going to go my own way, God. And God has every right to just let us go. And he has every right to punish us for our rebellion to him, that we would experience eternal separation from God in hell. Every right. But Jesus, it says, did not consider equality with God. The fact that he is God as something to be exploited. He didn't use that as his excuse to not do something about our problem of sin and judgment. Instead, Paul says, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. As human beings, we have significance and value and worth. God has made us in his image and likeness. We have great value and worth. But sometimes we think of ourselves too highly and we don't understand what's going on here. That when Paul says he came in the form of a servant, in the likeness, taking on the likeness of humanity, Jesus became a human being. He became the very thing that turned their back on him, that rejected him. And he didn't just appear on earth, but he came like we come into the world. He was born into the world as a baby. But he wasn't born into a home or a hospital like us. He was born in a manger. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a stable, laid in a manger. His mother, 12 or so years old, this peasant girl, a nobody, that he humbled himself, Paul says, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross that Jesus is the epitome of humility. He is the epitome of serving, that he even served us to the point, he humbled himself to the point where he died, where he gave up his own life for us. You think about that. You know, we're not probably willing to give our life up for many of any very few people especially people who don't like us. And yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus comes into the world that has cursed him and hated him. And he dies in our place to pay for our sin. That Jesus is the epitome of greatness. He is the example of being a servant. He shows us the attitude that we are to have. He doesn't say, I am God and you are humans. Therefore, see you later. You should just serve me. No, no, no. He came and he served us. And the rightful response, if we believe that to be true, is, God, I want to live my life in service to you. And we should look at those around us, not as people whom are to serve us, but as people that we have the opportunity to serve and love. This is greatness. Greatness is not measured by who is on top, but measured by who, in one sense, is at the bottom. It's not measured by power, 
that one possesses or position that somebody holds or the number of people they control, but it's by putting ourselves below others, putting others ahead of ourselves. And Jesus modeled this perfectly. What I want to do just in closing is I want to go back to John 13, verse 17. In John 13, you remember again, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. And he tells them about the, what, why he did it, an example for how we're to live. And he says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. And one of those things that he's clearly addressing or talking about is living this life as a servant. Is being humble. Not exalting ourselves over others. Not seeing ourselves as better than others. Not just being consumed and concerned with ourselves but caring about others, lifting up others, getting low to serve and bless others. He says, you are blessed if you do them. One commentator said, in God's eyes, the lowly place is the great place. Why? In other words, a servant, living as a servant is really the best way to live. It's the best way to live. But why, why, why is this the great place? Why is this the best way to live? Well, there's probably lots of reasons why, but I just wanna give you uh, just two quickly. One is this, is it will strengthen your relationships. You will have better relationships with other people, more united relationships. You know what's so often the source of tension and strife in our homes, with our spouse, with our children, with your roommates, with whomever, your coworker, it's our pride. That oftentimes we enter into a place where what happens is we see ourselves as greater than others and we expect them to do something for us. Or more so, even what we do is we oftentimes attach things to our serving. There's strings attached. There's expectations we have. In other words, if I do this, I expect someone to say at least thank you to me. I expect you to acknowledge that I just made this meal and it took me a long time. I expect you to be appreciative towards me when I just mowed the whole yard in 95 degree weather. That we attach expectations to our serving. We expect something in return for the service that we have performed. Now, what happens when those expectations aren't met? You become disappointed. And what happens if that disappointment isn't dealt with? You become bitter. And so what happens oftentimes is there's this frustration, tension, bitterness. We begin to look at the people that we are to be most united with as almost enemies we begin to look at them and see them in a wrong way with a wrong lens because we have served with expectations and those expectations have not been met and so we become disappointed and bitter, frustrated with each other, angry at one another. And rather than being, there being unity and strength in our relationship, there's division, there's tension there's broken relationships. And I've experienced this over and over again, like so many times, why I get annoyed or frustrated or angry by something is I'm like, like, am I the only one in this house that serves? 
Am I the only one that does anything? (laughs) Obviously not. But that's how we can act. That's how we can think. And see, the servant, if we were to serve the way that Jesus calls us to, that's not how the way we think. We don't serve when someone just simply asks us to. We don't serve because we're going to get something in return. We meet the need that's in front of us. And we should do it with an attitude of joy and gratefulness because we have been served in the greatest way. Our sin has been atoned for in Christ. And this brings to the second reason, which is this, is that this is where we find genuine, authentic fellowship with Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus is obviously the king of kings, but he's also the servant of servants. And he's called us to this place of lowliness, of humility, of meekness. And he didn't just call us to do, again, tasks, but he called us to a certain mindset and attitude in those tasks, if you will. And do you know what happens when you try to serve like Jesus? Like actually you're, you're trying to do it out of a heart of genuine care, concern for another person, or you're trying not to do it with strings attached or whatever the case may be. You know what happens? You begin to realize you need Jesus. Like I can't do this the way you've called me to apart from you, Jesus. And so what this does, it forces us or allows us rather, gives us the opportunity to press into and to rely on, to depend on Jesus. And as we do that, we will experience a greater relationship with Jesus. This is, who Jesus, this is where Jesus is at. He's serving. He's not at the table being waited on. He's the one who's waiting on the people at the table. And so when we're waiting on others or serving others, we can rejoice because this is exactly what our Savior did. And he didn't just do it in the sense of washing feet, taking out trash, vacuuming the floor, whatever, he actually died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might have the righteousness of God. He gave up his life, not just figuratively, but literally. And so as we serve, We can rejoice because we get to know Jesus more. And isn't that the goal of the Christian life? So Jesus says, or in John, eternal life is to know God and the one whom he has sent. That's eternal life. It's to know God. It's to have a deeper dependence on God. A deeper trust and faith in Christ. So brothers and sisters, what should we do? Well, we should strive to be humble servants like Jesus. And many of you are doing that well, and many of you are are great examples of that, and so just continue in that. And for many of us, I think it's good to just assess and think about, why am I serving? What is my attitude? Am I serving because I'm looking for something in return? Am I serving because I'm, I'm hoping to get attention, to get accolades, to look great? You know, we can, it's funny, we can turn serving in the church into a competition, <laughs> like easily. But remember, serving isn't about simply just doing things. It's also about the manner of the heart, the attitude in which we do it with. And so we should stop and we should assess, Lord, 
why? Why am I doing this? And the solution then, if the motive is wrong, isn't to say, well, I guess I shouldn't serve anymore. It's to say, no, God, change my heart. Help me to be humble. Help me to have the attitude that Paul had. To see others as better than myself. So brothers and sisters, let's move to that end to strive to be humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we recognize that to do this, we need your grace. Lord, we need your help. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit to empower us. God, to be men and women who are living lives that are like you, Jesus. We thank you that you give us the grace to, you've changed the way that we think. God, you haven't just saved us from the punishment of sin, but God, you're transforming us and you're transforming us not just externally, but internally. And so we ask God that you just transform us more in our own thinking, God, that we'd see ourselves not greater than each other, but we'd see one another as greater than ourselves. And God, we would get low and serve. God, that we'd see this is where greatness is found. God, this is where we will find a deeper relationship with you is in serving. So God, we just need your help. We ask for your grace. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen.